following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. In Luke chapter 6, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Um, message is titled, What's New? And if you were here last Sunday, uh, you'll know that we talked a little bit about uh, the parables of the new wine, the new garment, and that Jesus, uh, in the gospel, uh, is bringing something very new. And uh, we looked last week that uh, what Jesus is bringing, the new um, system, really, that he's bringing in the gospel, is in many ways incompatible with the old. And so the question remains, uh, and we should be left with this, what exactly is it that's new? And immediately in Luke chapter 6, Luke arranges the stories to address that. And he starts looking at some of the things that Jesus is bringing uh, change that's confronting the old ways of the old system and the ways that which Jesus is bringing in the new. And um, to kind of give us a modern picture of this, uh, in, in some sense, Jesus is really bringing in a new corporate culture. Now, I use the word corporate culture to distinguish ethnic culture. And if you're in the business world, you know all about corporate culture. It's a real it's a fad these days, right? And uh, corporate culture, it's not so much like the language and styles of an ethnic people group, but it really describes the atmosphere or environment of an organization or a, a community or a group, Right? Uh, one, one, uh, one person defines it this way. Corporate culture refers to the shared values, attitudes, standards, and beliefs that characterize members of an organization and define its nature. When you think about uh, Judaism, about Israel during the time of Jesus, it had its very own unique corporate culture, right? Standards and ideas that defined kind of who they were as a people. Another definition says, corporate culture is seen as an organization's behavior and its structure. A hierarchical company may have individual offices, a formal environment, and intricate rules regulating employee conduct. Well, when we think about Israel as an organization, not so much a company, but an organization, a community, they had a certain corporate culture, right? And it could be very well defined. And if you know much about Judaism during that time, you would know that uh, intricate rules would define well what, what, what it was about during that time. And every part of their behavior and conduct and lifestyle was spelled out with these very detailed rule that, rules and instructions. And they were expected to follow those. And this culture developed over many thousands of years of history. And, of course, uh, a lot of it was started by God himself, Right? God, in, in essence, in the Old Testament, in the, in the Law of Moses, kind of handed them this corporate culture of, of law. And it spelled out in great detail a lot of how they were supposed to live and how they were supposed to dress, even what kind of foods they could eat. Right? Very intricate, detailed laws. And, of course, early on, Israel didn't really buy into this whole co- corporate culture that God handed them. They thought, well, we like our own corporate culture. And so often they, they neglected and ignored the commands. 
And eventually, God disciplined them many times. Eventually, it, it resulted, as we know, in the destruction of their country and their capital city of Jerusalem and, and the temple. And they were all captured, taken off to a foreign country as prisoners. And when they came back, they, they came back a lot smarter and wiser. And they were going, okay, we get it. God's really serious about this culture thing. He's got very high expectations about what we're supposed to be like. And so they started to take it much more seriously and began after the, uh, after the exile, between the, the exile and the time of Jesus, to really ingrain this into their community. Uh, and one example, this would be the Sabbath. Um, and the Sabbath is a big deal. And in fact, when you look through the prophets and through the Old Testament, Jesus, re- or Jesus God, repeatedly instructs them to keep the Sabbath day holy. And in fact, the prophets uh, blast Israel, and it's, it's cited as one of the reasons for the exile, for this great punishment from God, that they didn't keep the Sabbath holy. So after post-exile, did they keep the Sabbath holy? Oh, buddy, did they ever, right? And in fact, uh, they developed a, a whole code of laws just about the law of keeping the Sabbath. And they developed a 39... 39 laws, 39 regulations is spelled out every imaginable, conceivable way you could break the Sabbath, right? So when Jesus comes along, there's a certain culture about all this stuff. There is a culture about the Sabbath, right? And there are rules on rules on rules. And if you are to be a part of Israel, a part of Judaism, you will keep these rules, right? Or you, you risk being kicked out of the community, you, you, in fact, you could risk your own life. That's how seriously they took it. Um, so, so Jesus comes along, and as we'll see in this story in Luke, it seems that Jesus, you know, he's bringing a new culture. He's bringing something new, and he is confronting this culture of, uh, of keeping the law. Um, and, it, and it appears, and in this, this context and throughout the Gospels, Jesus is accused of being a lawbreaker, and quite honestly, it kind of looks that way, right? And, and we, we would kind of celebrate that. We would cheer Jesus on, yeah, down with the law, down with all those silly, ridiculous, overdone, you know, rules. Uh, we like the freedom, you know, Jesus is our hero. But the only problem with all that is that clearly, in fact, Luke starts out his gospel by stating that Luke's writing to explain how Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So here's the problem. In Jesus' zeal for the new, it appears that he is disregarding the old, and therefore how can he be fulfilling the law that he seems so quick and easy to break? It's kind of a problem. And... uh, it's something that the early church wrestled with and, and could be one of the reasons why Luke wrote this book. Um, and it's something that we need to think through, right? Was Jesus a careless lawbreaker? And if so, how did he fulfill the law by ignoring it, right? That's the question. Um, it's interesting that, uh, you know, in this issue of the Sabbath, uh, the New Testament church uh, apparently tossed out the Sabbath. Uh, is that really what Jesus is saying here? Uh, most of us, in fact, here, when I teach national pastors in many different countries, 
One of the things I always love is surveying pastors from all different countries, and I will ask them, do you take a day off? Do you keep a Sabbath? Uh, Do you once a week take one day off? You know, over 90% of all the places I've been, of all the pastors I've surveyed, 90% do not, right? Um, If we were to survey missionaries, how many missionaries take a day off? Okay, well, if I ask the wives, I may get one answer than what if I ask the husbands. All right, does it matter? Right, does it matter? Do we chuck the law, or are we in some sense obligated to it? Well, those are the questions that are raised in this passage. So let's look and read together uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples broke off heads of grain rubbed off the husks in their hands, and ate the grain. But some Pharisees said, Why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus replied, Haven't you read the scriptures, in the scriptures, what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests can eat. He also gave some to his companions. And Jesus added, The Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. On another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew their thoughts And he said to the man with the deformed hand, Come and stand in front of everyone. So the man came forward. Then Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them one by one and said to the man, Hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. At this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. First story. Uh, Jesus, it's the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are traveling around somewhere, doesn't say where, and they cut through, take a shortcut through probably a wheat or barley field, and the grain is ripe for harvest, right? And so they pick some of the heads of grain and they rub it in their hands to break off the flax and the husk. So there's just grain left and they pop it in their mouth. Instant handy snack, right? And it's free. Uh, Now, of course, uh, they weren't stealing. That was not the accusation. This was allowed for in Jewish law. Um, But it was on the Sabbath. and, And the Pharisees who were... Uh, watching very closely, and you know, I kind of get this picture of these guys hanging out in the wheat fields, you know, peeking through the blades of grass. Not sure that's how it was, but they're, they're watching very closely because they suspect that Jesus is a heretic. They're beginning to get this idea that Jesus is not in their school and he's not following their rules or their way of doing things. So they're looking for ways to trap him, to prove that this guy's uh, not to be trusted, and we should discredit his ministry. And so here's a great opportunity. Clearly, the disciples are harvesting grain and preparing a meal on the Sabbath. 
uh, which would have been their, their charge. And basically there was four of those 39 laws that they would have been breaking. They were harvesting grain on the Sabbath. They winnowed and thrashed the grain on the Sabbath, uh, which would be two separate activities. And they prepared a meal on the Sabbath. Okay? Those would have been the charges against them. So four accounts of breaking uh, the, the laws of, of not working on the Sabbath. Uh, now it's clear to see what they were not doing. Uh, they were not out there harvesting the crop. Okay, They weren't out there with their sickles, uh, putting in and storing up for the rest of the year their harvest of grain. Right? Why were they doing this? Well, it says they were hungry. Right? These were all young, growing, strapping guys. Um, good appetite. It was probably midday-ish or maybe in the late afternoon. They were hungry. Right? And here's ready-made food right there. And they grab off a little bit and they prepare it, pop it in their mouth to sustain themselves, right? Um, in, in many senses, they were not ignoring the Sabbath, okay? It doesn't say that... And in fact, one of the regulations on the Sabbath was to travel over a certain distance. Well, they didn't accuse Jesus of that, so Jesus clearly hadn't been traveling many, many miles. Um, they had probably... They had certainly followed all the other regulations of the Sabbath, or the Pharisees would have pointed that out as well. They are uh, committing what we we would consider a minor infraction. Uh, They really were not ignoring completely the Sabbath. They, in their minds, had observed the Sabbath. They had set it aside as a day of rest. Um, They were just grabbing some lunch on the way. It was their version of 7-Eleven, right? So... Uh, so the Pharisees come and they accuse Jesus of being a lawbreaker. And they, they say, uh, why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Why are you violating and committing and doing what should not be done? And notice Jesus' defense. Now, this is what Jesus could have said. Jesus could have said this. He could have said, look, you know, I, I know and understand the original law that was given by Moses. And the original law given by Moses was to set the say set aside the day and make it holy, right? The 39 other additions were not part of the original law. And Jesus could have easily said, well, look, I'm fulfilling and keeping God's original law. You guys have just gone way overboard with all your regulations, right? And I'm I'm just stripping off the man-made regulations and I'm restoring it back to its God-designed law, right? So he could have argued that, you know, really we are keeping it we're just not keeping it the way you think we should. But notice what Jesus argues. Okay, That's not what he says. He says this. Uh, Jesus replied, Haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he is com- and his companions were hungry? Uh, he went into the house of God and did what? He broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests can eat. And he also gave some to his companions. This is Jesus' defense. He says, I'm not the only guy that's broke the law. Okay? So Jesus is not trying to weasel his way out here and say, well, I'm not, really not breaking the law. I really am keeping it. Right? He says, no, that's not that's even an issue. He says, look, David broke the law. Right? Uh, if you remember the story, David was running for his life from Saul. Uh, uh, he knew that Saul was out to kill him. He and his men fled to the tabernacle. It was before the days of the temple. Fled to the tabernacle, talked to the high priest. He says, look, I'm running. I need, I need some help. Uh, do you have any food? 
The priest says, well, all we have is the bread of presence. And uh, the, the, in the temple, right before the Holy of Holy Place was a small table. And on that table was to be kept 12 loaves of bread and a glass of wine perpetually before God. Right? It's the, the, the bread of presence. He says, all I have is that bread. He said, we've just changed it out. And so I have the leftovers from last week that we just took off. Uh, and, and that was to be eaten by the priest. And the law was very specific that only the priest, that this was holy, consecrated bread, only the, high, only the priest and the priest family could eat it. But the priest says, if you want that bread, you can have it. And David takes it, and he eats it, and he gives some to his companions, and they eat it. And so David clearly, uh, without dispute, broke the law. And, uh, and you have David as the anointed uh, king and the high priest both condoning the act. Right? Uh, and, and basically the argument was David had a legitimate need. He was fleeing for his life. It seemed reasonable to break the law in order to preserve his life. Um, and it was sanctioned by both David, king, and the priest. And basically Jesus argues... Sometimes the right thing to do is break the law. Right? Sometimes it is the right thing to do. Uh, and he basically traps the Pharisees. Because this, this is his argument. He says, look, um, you either have to condemn what David did as breaking the law, or you have to allow that under some circumstances, it's okay to break the law. Of course, these guys weren't about to condemn David and an Old Testament priest. Right? So they're, they're kind of trapped and stuck. Uh, Jesus was always so smart. Um, There was probably one argument that the priests could have used at this point, and they could have said, well, yeah, okay, but that was King David. Who are you? Well, Jesus cuts them off at the pass. He intercepts their argument, and he adds, by the way, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Um, In Matthew and Mark, there's a lot more extended information that Jesus gives here. Um, And we don't have time to go into all that, but uh, Matthew and Mark basically argue that that man himself, that we as human beings actually have authority over the law. That we have the right and the stewardship to interpret and apply the law with a certain amount of common sense and wisdom. Uh, Luke skips all that, and he jumps right straight to really the ultimate authority. And he says, look, Jesus is... The Messiah, he exercises divine right of authority and rule over even the law. Uh, Basically, Jesus is saying here, the law is not king. For those of you who are students of history, the law is king, well, to a degree, but the law is not actually the king. The law itself is subject to a greater authority. And, And that authority would, of course, ultimately be God himself. And Jesus says, I said in the divine right of rule over the law, I have the right to determine its proper interpretation, application, and use as the Son of Man, the Messiah. So, uh, so here are the old and the new come clashing. The old is a corporate culture where the law was master and lord of all. And what had developed in Israel at this time was a a time where the law was unbreakable, unbendable, 
It was a cruel and harsh master that nobody questioned and no one ever broke or you fell under its wrath and judgment, right? And Jesus is bringing a new order where uh, the law is the servant of both God and man, ultimately of God, but also of man. And and the principle that uh, Jesus brings out through this is that the law should never prevent someone from meeting genuine human need. Okay, the law was never intended or designed to prevent us from meeting our basic legitimate human needs. Okay, and where the law would do that, then human need, caring for the needs of people, would trump, would override the law. As in the case of David, and Jesus says, justifiably in this situation here, it's right or good to, to care for the needs of the, of the disciples who are hungry. The law was never intended to prevent that. That's a misapplication of the law. If the law is ever depriving us of food, clothing, shelter, or the ability to live, then the law needs to yield to our basic human needs. That's basically what Jesus is teaching by this example. Uh, Second story. Another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. So Jesus is at church, he's teaching, and in the crowd is a guy whose hand is atrophied, withered. Uh, Whether from birth, whether he had cerebral palsy and had a palsied hand, or whether from uh, some accident it was injured, whatever the case, he had no use of his hand. Uh, Some of the Gospels say it was his right hand. Luke doesn't mention that would have affected his livelihood, his ability to earn a living. Uh, it, was, it was a health problem, right? Um, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees were, again, what were they doing? Watching Jesus closely. Literally, the word there is they were spying on him. Um, if he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew their thoughts. So he said to the man, come stand in front of everyone. So the man comes forward. So Jesus is not going to back down from this challenge. Okay, Jesus and all the Pharisees are looking at this poor guy with the withered hand who's feeling really uncomfortable, right? And you can feel the tension growing in the room as there's about to be this showdown at the OK Corral. And Jesus takes the challenge. He says, okay, friend, come up here where everybody can see you. Right? So the guy, poor guy walks up with the crippled hand right in front of God and everybody. And... Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus is going to confront uh, what is permitted. And the question is, question is for, for all, the, all the Pharisees, all the keepers of the law, the big question is, what is permitted? Many translations in this passage would translate it lawful. But it's a word that uh, is broadly used. What's permitted? What is allowed? Right? And uh, the rabbis would walk around saying this all the time. Is it permitted? Da, 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 right? Is it permitted? Right? Is it permitted to heal on the Sabbath? Well, actually, it was permitted to heal on the Sabbath, and the law spelled out uh, the conditions for healing on the Sabbath. And basically, the conditions were: if a if if a matter was life threatening, then of course it was permissible to heal. So somebody's bleeding to death, and you can intervene and stop the bleeding. Well, that you should do, right? Um, They're about to die. If it's that urgent, life and death, you do something. Also, 
Somebody's, I love this one. Lady's going to give birth. It starts happening on the Sabbath. You don't say, sorry, lady. You can't have the baby today. You got to wait till tomorrow. No. Baby's coming, right? And it was permissible for midwives to come in and do their job uh, to deliver the baby, right? These are urgent, uh, basically life-threatening situations. It was permissible, right? And, and the way the law was worded is basically it was permissible to save life on the Sabbath. That was how they would have worded it, right? You could save life. This guy's not bleeding to death, right? It could be very well that he was born with this condition. If not, he'd certainly had it for a long time. He wasn't dying from his, his withered hand, right? In fact, he'd lived quite well with it for a long time, perhaps. Uh, he could come back tomorrow and, and get help, right? This could wait. It didn't demand attention on the Sabbath, right? And so the Pharisees felt that for Jesus to step in and to heal where it wasn't life-threatening, that would violate the law. It would be working on the Sabbath. Uh, But Jesus, um, as we already saw in the first story, Jesus argues that human need is more important than the law, that the law should never prevent the meeting of human need. Uh, here he takes it a little bit further, that he qualifies human need not as urgent, desperate human need. Right? So we only, we only would overstep the law if, if it's desperately needed because somebody's dying. In other words, the disciples weren't actually starving to death. They probably would have lived if they hadn't picked the handful of grain if they'd waited till the next day to eat, they probably weren't going to starve to death. This man with the crippled hands probably going to be just fine if he waits until tomorrow. Right? But Jesus argues that it's not just desperate human need, but any human need. And so Jesus uh, argues the point this way. He says to his critics, I have a question for you. Does the law permit? Remember, that's the question. What's permissible? Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Seems kind of like an easy question. I think I know the answer to that one. Is it a day to save life or destroy it? Uh, first one, is it acceptable to do good or evil? Uh, interestingly, Jesus was seeking to do good. The Pharisees were sneaking around uh, trying to trap him. Uh, ultimately, they would trap him and kill him. Uh, who's doing good and who's doing evil? Right, um, and and clearly the answer is it's always permitted to do good rather than evil, and for Jesus uh, to do nothing was not an option. Right, for Jesus, doing good or doing nothing was not an option because if you see a need and have the capacity to help and show kindness to another person and you don't do it, that would be evil. Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, I have the opportunity to help this guy. I have the opportunity to do something good. If I do nothing, that would be evil. Right? That's the argument he's making here. And basically what Jesus is saying here is that it's always permitted, it's always permissible, it's always right to do good. Um, kind of a no-brainer. Um, doing what is truly good for others always accomplishes the truest meaning and purpose of the law, right? So how does Jesus fulfill the law? Well, Jesus fulfills the law not by ignoring it 
or by sidestepping it randomly. But Jesus knows the true interpretation and application of the law, that the law always is in service of doing good to people. That was the point of the law. The law was given to instruct us how to love each other, how to do what was right and good towards other human beings. So when the good is obvious, right, we don't need the law to instruct us what to do. It's always lawful and right to do the good thing. Second argument, he says, it's, is, it, is it good to save life or to destroy it? Again, Jesus is trying to save this guy's life in some respect. Uh, the Pharisees were ultimately trying to destroy Jesus' ministry and eventually his life. Um, and and the, the difference came down, because remember, the, the Pharisees would have said, yes, it's right, it's, it's proper to save a life, but they would apply the narrowest definition to the word save. But Jesus applied a much broader definition. And for him, Jesus defines saving as any act that restores life in its fullest sense. Right? John 10.10, 10, he says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Uh, real quick, I want to run through the first uh, five miracles in chapters 4 and 5 of Luke. Okay, uh, First time, G- first five things that Jesus does in his ministry in the Gospel of Luke. No, notice it. First one, Luke 4.33, uh, he, he uh, drives the demon out of the demoniac, right? Uh, he, he casts out the demon. Um, we, we would consider demon possession as, a, as an emotional disorder, okay? In fact, there's a lot of parallels and similarities. I'm not saying it's not spiritual, but it's very emotional. When you're under demon oppression, your emotions are turned inside out, right? And so Jesus sets him free from that, and he really restores this guy emotionally, right? He sets him free. He brings emotional restoration. Luke 4.38, Jesus uh, heals Peter's mother-in-law who's suffering from a fever. He brings physical restoration to her body. Uh, Luke 5.4, Jesus is in the boat with Peter, and he says to them, uh, drop your net. And Peter says, I haven't caught anything all night. Remember this story? Jesus says, do it anyway. They drop the net. And what happens? They catch so many fish, they can't even haul them in. Uh, Jesus blesses them economically. He brings economic restoration. He restores their livelihood. Right? Can you live without being able to make a living? No. So part of life is, is being able to support yourself. Jesus does that for them. Uh, Luke 5.12, Jesus heals the leper. Uh, the leper, of course, was a physical condition, but more than that, it was a social condition that made him an outcast of society and disqualified him from participating with the community in worship. Jesus heals him, but in healing him, he restores him socially. He plugs him back into the community, right? Uh, and, and, of course, he, he restores him spiritually by bringing forgiveness. Luke 5.18, he heals the paralytic the whole story where he forgives sin and they question his right to forgive sin. He says, you know, uh, which is hard to say, forgive your sins or rise up and walk, but so you know that I have authority to forgive sin. Stand up, take your bed and walk. Right? So Jesus restores this guy spiritually. He brings forgiveness and he restores him physically. Okay, Jesus would say that's all life-giving activity. That's all the activity of the gospel that saves people. Okay, Salvation doesn't just mean you're lying in the road bleeding to death. It means restoring life to its fullest meaning 
and God-designed purpose. So here's a guy who's got a crippled hand. Does he need saving? Is his life at its fullest God-designed human purpose? No. And God's, Jesus' purpose is to restore health to this guy. That is a saving activity. And uh, so Jesus' um, argument here is that it's always good to save. Right? It's always good to bring people into the fullness of what life God has for them. And, uh, of course, Jesus' authority is again confirmed by God because he heals the guy. Uh, it says, uh, he looked around at them one by one. Okay, I can only imagine what that look was like. Okay, he looked at them. He looked at these Pharisees one by one and he drilled them with his eyes. You know that mom look, right? Um, well, Jesus had one of those looks that I'm sure was penetrating, penetrating, right? And maybe he was reading their intentions to destroy him, and they knew that, right? And then Jesus said to the man, hold out your hand, basically stretch out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored, And at this point, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. How can we destroy this guy? Jesus restores him. Uh, Where does healing come from? Well, it comes from God alone. Where does the saving power come from? It comes from God alone. God confirms Jesus' argument here basically through the miracle. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't actually do anything. Jesus is standing up there with his arms folded and he just says to the guy, stretch out your hand. Something he couldn't have done with a withered hand until it was healed first. Uh, and as an act of faith and as a confirmation of healing, he stretches out his hand and it's healed, right? Did Jesus actually work? No, but God did, right? God did. Well, <clears throat> again, God confirms Jesus' authority and Jesus' correct interpretation and understanding of the law and its greater purpose, its true and greater purpose. Uh, Let's apply this real briefly, uh, modern day life. Um, Did Jesus fulfill the law? Yes, he fulfilled the law perfectly. He kept the law completely. In every way, Jesus followed the Old Testament commands. Um, He did not disregard the Sabbath. He did not ignore or count as unimportant the dietary laws or the worship laws or the laws of ceremonial cleanliness. As a Jew, he kept the law to its minutest detail. But there were times when he knew that the law was limited and fallible and had to serve a greater law and a greater purpose. And he always opted to fulfill the law in its greatest meaning and purpose and extent. Galatians 5, 14 through 16 puts it this way. The whole law is, well, verse 14, sorry. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is actually six words. Okay, I won't argue with what that means, but okay. The law is fulfilled in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Did Jesus keep and fulfill the law? Absolutely. Perfectly, right? Um. And, and the principle that Jesus uh, teaches here is that he interprets the true meaning and purpose of the law, and it's always permitted to do good. It's always right to save life. 
God's law is fulfilled in loving people as God loves them. Any law that would interfere with doing what is truly good for others, the law must be set aside. Uh, The law should never prevent showing love and kindness to others. That's not the purpose of the law. Any law that would prevent or hinder from someone from giving life, from saving another, well, the law needs to be set aside because the law must never stop one from giving life in all of its dimensions, restoring uh, the fullness of life, physically, mentally, socially, spiritually, economically, in all in all its facets. Okay, and Jesus models that. Uh, he cared for their needs. He met their needs. He loved them. He fulfilled the law. Well, what about our modern church corporate culture? Do we have a culture that's legalistic or not legalistic? Well, I'd like to just have some fun with this a bit. Okay, I'm not trying to pick on anybody here, so don't take this personally. But let's think about our corporate culture. Honestly, I think oftentimes we end up with a corporate culture, church culture, that's quite confused. And we, we tend to end up possessing or holding on to two opposite extremes all at the same time. Let me illustrate. On the one hand, we, we can often get caught in the same legalism of the Pharisees. Okay, oftentimes, we as Christians and as the church uh, re- revert to the place, the old way, where law is Lord and King. Let me give you an example. Here we have some proof. Okay, proof. Um, and again, please don't throw things at me. Uh, when I was teaching uh, high school at, at Grace, uh, my, one, my one glorious year as a teacher, um, got to teach an ethics class, a lot of fun. And uh, one day we were talking about the ethics of, is it ever, you know, the big question, is it ever okay to lie? Right? Is it ever okay to lie? Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, right? But in this class of high school students, uh, I would say 99% of the kids said, it is absolutely never okay to lie. Okay? And you throw out the arguments, so what about, you know, Corey Tenboom hiding Jews who are about to be annihilated by the Nazis? You know, they lied, they deceived the, the Nazis in order to hide and rescue these um, people on the way to the death camps. Are you telling me that it, it was wrong for them to lie in order to protect these people? Absolutely. It's sin. You can't lie ever. Right? But I, had, I, I, thought, I thought I was going to get burned at the stake in class one day. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, and, and, and granted, you know, as we're young, we tend to be very black and white, very concrete. Hopefully as we get older, you know, we kind of mellow out a little bit, get some wisdom. Right? Is it ever okay to lie? Well, Jesus would say, well, of course, if it's going to save a life lie, right? Jesus says, yeah, you break the law if the law is preventing you from doing good, right? Because there is a higher, greater purpose of law, doing good and saving life. Is it always good and right to save life at all costs? Absolutely, right? If it, if it takes a, a, a little bit of deception to do that, right? Break the law, right? Jesus did. David did. Right? I think we're confused. Um, another, okay, we'll move up to adults. Okay, that's, the illustration's not good enough. Um, I teach a lot of parenting classes to, to Christian people. 
right? And I only have this issue when I teach Christians. When I teach non-Christians, they kind of get this, right? But uh, I always get this every time, whatever the setting. Uh, when I teach parenting, people say to me, well, yeah, but as Christian parents, we're supposed to beat our children, right? Well, they use the word spank, not beat, right? Whatever, right? That it's, it's a mandate from God that all Christians must spank their children, right? And if you're not a good Christian parent, if you don't do this, you're not keeping the law. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't spank your kids. Some kids probably need to be spanked a lot more than they are. I don't know, right? The question is, are you spanking your kids only because it's a law of the Old Testament? And they always quote, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child, because that's in the Bible, right? Or the, the more actual version, uh, you know... Raise up a child the way they should go, whatever. Uh, and my favorite response to that is, you know, the same laws would also say that we're supposed to stone to death rebellious teenagers, right? Hey! <laughs> we're liking that one. <laughs> right? You know, are we going to keep the law or not, right? Now, that's a choice, and, and certainly I, I think Christians are, there's a way to do that. Uh, for your own kids. I don't think we have the right to do that to other kids, right? You're in children's homes, that kind of thing, which I get this all the time, you know. I don't think we have, biblically, uh, the authority to necessarily just spank everybody's kids. <laughs> the Bible doesn't actually say that, right? right? And the point is, the point is, how easily we move into this rigid legalism where we have to do this thing because the Bible says so, right? Um... But it may not be what is most good and loving. It may not be what is most life-giving right? in every circumstance. On the other hand, so, so we, we, we all, in many ways, we could probably go on down the list, we, we can fall into this rigid legalism. At the same time, on the other hand, uh, often by the same exact people in the same exact room and same exact setting, people are quick to throw up all kinds of laws just because they're not important to us, right? Uh, take, for example, uh, the Sabbath, right? What church and who keeps the Sabbath anymore? Now, some of you grew up in kind of old school, very rigid, conservative homes. Maybe, you know, you don't play baseball, you don't do, you don't have fun, you don't, you go to church and you go home and you lay face down on the floor the rest of the day, you know, that kind of thing. Um, um, and what's interesting is, and, and I'm not, we're not going to give a sermon on how to keep the Sabbath. But here's the thing. The Sabbath doesn't actually come out of the law. It actually dates back long before the law to creation, where Jesus gave us the principle that one in every seven days should be a day of rest. Right? Do we really have the right to throw off Sabbath and ignore it and work ourselves seven days a week until we kill ourselves? Is that really God's intention? Right? Uh, another one, roles of men and women in the family and the church. And I'll get for sure shot out for this one. Um, uh, you know, can we just ignore what the Bible says about the roles and places of men and women in the family and in, in church leadership? And the argument is, well, it's just culture. And I don't mean corporate culture. I mean ethnic culture, you know. That was their culture. We live now in a much more democratic culture, and those things just aren't relevant anymore. We can ignore all that the Bible says, Old and New Testament, about the rightful roles and, and the way men and women are to relate in the home and in the church. Right? 
there again, those are things that were established not in the law of Moses. They go back to creation. God created in a certain order, and there's things to learn about how he created man and woman in the garden. Right? Can we just ignore all that as, well, it's just culture. Right? Accepting all sexual lifestyles into the church. Sadly, we're living in a day where in the church, universally, it doesn't matter if you live together before marriage and have you know, sexual relations before marriage, not a big deal. You can still be actively involved in church. You can serve and worship. You can teach Sunday school because it's just your lifestyle. Uh, you can have all kinds of uh, immoral relationships as a married person outside of marriage with no accountability. There's a whole gay lifestyle thing. We can ordain them, marry them, accept them. Why? Because we're supposed to love all people, right? It's all about love. Just got to love people, right? Well, both of those, going overboard on the law and going overboard on just love, would be misunderstanding and misapplying what Jesus is saying here, right? Both extremes, ironically, often exist in the same organization or church or family, oftentimes within our own private lives, right? It's, it's amazing how we can be both legalistic and libertarian, lawless, uh, kind of simultane- simultaneously, so what's the governing principle? Well, Jesus teaches a new way. And, and here's some real quick principles. The law is still a legitimate guide. Old and New Testament. It is still a legitimate guide. Why? Because the law expresses God's own corporate culture. Okay? It expresses the very heart and intentions of God. And it does lay out for us how we are to treat each other and how we are to honor God. So the law is still a guide for us. We don't rip out the Old Testament or laws we don't like. It is to be instructive for us, and it is to guide us. Um, We should study it, know it, and in some way follow it. We are to follow the code of law God gave us. Um, But not in the old way. Okay, Not keeping only the outward details without grasping its true meaning or purpose. Uh, We do not let the Lord become master and blindly follow its demands without thinking it through, right? And without understanding its higher purpose. Um, And and we need to distinguish between the moral code, which is universal, and the social code given to Israel as a social, as as a country, right? So a lot of the rules about diet and dress, New Testament clearly dismisses those. But nowhere does the New Testament dismiss the moral code of God to honor our parents and to tell the truth and to uh, walk in moral purity. Okay, We are under those laws, and we are to follow them. Uh, but we're to do it in the, in the new way, which is to always do good and seek to save life. Right? That should be what drives us. It is what drove Jesus. The question should always be, you know, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would always do what is good, what is loving, and what will bring uh, life. As we prepare for communion, um, here's a question. Is it ever permitted in the law to allow a grave injustice when you have the power to intervene and stop it, right? 
Is there ever a case where somebody's being wrongly accused, is being killed, right? And you have a, both a, the knowledge and the authority and the power to step in and stop it. Would it ever be right for you just to stand by and not do something? Well, amazingly, this is exactly what God did, right? His son was wrongly accused, was illegally tried, and was cruelly put to death. Could God the Father have stopped it at any time? He could have stepped in and he could have intervened and he could have rescued his son. But he did not. Well, why? Well, because he wanted to do something good for us instead. He wanted to give life to us instead. And he knew the only way that he could do the good thing for us, the only way he could give life to us, was by allowing his son to become a sacrifice for us. Talk about an ethical, moral dilemma. And God chose love. He chose love, right? As we prepare our hearts to take communion, and we'll have the ushers come forward and also the worship band. Just take a moment and reflect on, on the law of love that moves and drives God's heart toward us. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.